Uh, well, good evening. I uh, hope you can hear me okay. Uh, my name is Lee. Uh, so good to be with you. Uh, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 33, uh, apologies for my lateness. Um, I always underestimate football traffic in the south of Glasgow, so, um, but it's so good to be with you. Um, I serve as a, a ministry apprentice at Harvest Glasgow in the south side of the city. Uh, I think Scott was with you maybe two or three weeks ago, uh, from what I gather. Um, so it's my pleasure to be here with you, to serve you in this way, um, and just uh, praying for our time together as we dig into God's Word together. Uh, so if you've opened your Bible to Psalm 33, um, we're just going to read it together. I'm not sure if it's already been read, but we'll read it again anyway. Uh, So let's read the the word of the Lord together. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let me just pray as we come to consider what these things uh, mean for us. Uh, Father, just so thankful um, for what we've just uh, sung. Um, thankful for this time to, to gather together, to again be reminded of who you are, of the grace that you've shown towards us. Um, Father, pray as we come uh, to you, wherever we might be, in our head and in our hearts, Father, that you would just um, cause us to focus on you, um, to come before your word. Father, would you soften our hearts? Would you cause us to be uh, receptive and ready to hear uh, what would you, you would say to us, Father, I pray that now by your spirit through your word, uh, you would powerfully work in our lives to change us and to transform us in a way that only you can, Father. Uh, so we trust in you uh, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so I want you to ask yourself this question. Uh, what was going on in your mind and in your heart as you stood up to sing the first song this evening? Or maybe you think back to this morning, what was going on in your mind, what was going on in your heart as you got up out of your seat and you were called to sing together to the Lord? Maybe your mind was distracted on other things. Maybe your heart is heavy due to circumstances that are going on in your life right now. Maybe you just feel tired and mourn. It's been a a long day. It's been a long week. And the prospect of another week 
um, makes you feel tired. Maybe you're anxious about something, uh, about someone, about a, a certain, certain situation. Maybe you're fearful about the future. Or maybe you feel um, hypocritical because of a sin that you're struggling with in your life. You're, you're called to sing these words. You're called to sing them wholeheartedly. But because of the sin that's currently going on inside your heart and that you're wrestling with, you feel hypocritical singing these, these words. Or maybe you're just apathetic. Maybe you just don't really care. Or maybe you're somewhere in the middle. It's, it's just become a routine, right? Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Okay, I can, I can resonate with that. Familiar uh, people, familiar surroundings, familiar words can sometimes just lead to flat worship, right? Often our mouths move, um, but our hearts remain unmoved by the words that we hear, the words that we, that we see, and the words that we sing. The truths that we are singing about, these great truths that we've been reminded of even tonight already, just don't feel tangible in our lives. Psalm 33 is, is given to us as, a, as an antidote, if you want to think about it that way. Psalm 33 is an, is an antidote to an apathetic and anxious heart. It is a call to wholehearted, all-out, joy-filled worship of the Lord. And, and most of the psalm is dedicated to giving us reasons why and inciting us to that wholehearted and joy-filled worship of the Lord. So if you're longing to worship the Lord with a, an authentic, joyful heart, if you feel like circumstances in your life or, or the sin that you're struggling with is suffocating your ability to, to shout out and to, and to sing to the Lord, if your mind is, is distracted or you feel distant, then this psalm here, Psalm 33, is here to help us fuel our worship of the Lord. Its purpose is to refocus our attention on the Lord in order to ignite our affection for Him, to reorientate our perspective on life, so that we have reason to shout out loud. What Psalm 33 aims to do in us is incite that fear-fueled worship of God that results in a heart that increasingly trusts in God. Okay, that's where we are going with this psalm. As, as we journey through this psalm together, we'll see that fervent worship of the Lord is fueled by a fear of the Lord and it leads to a heart that trusts deeply in the Lord. A heart that won't just sing truths about God, but we'll experience them in a deeply tangible way in our lives. So that's the, the first thing we say, see here is that I'm compelled to fervently worship the Lord. Verses 1 to 3, I'm compelled to fervently worship the Lord. Okay, within just three verses, if you look down at the three verses that begin in Psalm 33, within just three verses, there are six calls to worship the Lord. Shout for joy, praise, give thanks, Make melody, sing to him, play skillfully with loud shouts. And who, who is it that's called to do this? Well, verse 1 tells us it's the, upright, uh, the, the righteous and the, and the upright. That is who is called to, to sing out here. That who is called to, to shout out here, the, the righteous and the upright. If you notice this psalm, it's a bit unusual, it doesn't have a heading. Really, it's just a continuation of Psalm 32 before it. And if you look back to Psalm 32, maybe just on the page over, you'll see it ends with the same call to rejoice and worship that Psalm 33 begins with. Psalm 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Psalm 32, 5 describes the one who has acknowledged their sin before the Lord, and then they have experienced freedom, the freedom that comes from the Lord's forgiveness. 
And they're now surrounded by his steadfast love in verse 10. They've experienced the, the freedom that comes from for the forgiveness of God. And in verse 10, they are now surrounded by the steadfast love of the Lord. That is who the upright is. That is who the, the righteous is. So the call to worship and to sing is for those who have experienced that freedom, that freedom that comes from the Lord's forgiveness and who are now surrounded by his steadfast love. So if that is you, if, if you have been forgiven by God and know his steadfast love because you have trusted in what Jesus has done for you on the cross for your sins, then your life should be marked by singing. If that's not you, then my prayer is that, um, that you would, would encounter that forgiveness and freedom through these verses and that you would come to know that for yourself as we spend time in God's word together. God would love for you to know the salvation that he has for you and that he offers to you through his, through his son. And he would love to give you something to sing about. He would love to give you something to sing about. And what we see here and what we see throughout the Psalms and throughout the whole Bible is that saved people sing. Saved people sing. Singing is the right response for those who have been made righteous. On the, the way home this morning from uh, church, or well, a little bit later, around one or two o'clock, we were driving uh, home and we live near Hamden Park, as, as I've said, reason I was late. And uh, all these buses are going by and as we're sitting in the traffic queue, you can hear singing, right? You can hear some singing going on. And at first we didn't realise what was going on. We didn't realise there was a match on tonight. But without even seeing the bus or without even seeing who was in the bus, uh, the automatic thought that went through my mind was, I bet you that's a bus full of football fans. Didn't see their scars, didn't see their shirts, but it was a good guess that they were football fans. And my, uh, my suspicions were confirmed when two of them jumped off the bus to go to the toilet and then had to run and catch the bus later on down the road. <laughs> but we knew who they were from the sing that we heard. And that's the same for God's people. Saved people sing. They are known by what they say, they are known by how they live, and they are known by the fact that they sing, that they have something to shout about and to rejoice in. And we sing not just a, as a church, a, a corporately, although that is the, the pinnacle of our, of our week, but it is also to be the pattern of everyday life, praising and singing and giving thanks to the Lord. The, the forgiveness and steadfast love of the Lord, which we know through a saving relationship with Jesus, is the foundation, okay? The forgiveness the salvation that we have in Jesus is the foundation for fervent worship to the Lord. And that's what compels us to fervently worship the Lord. That's what we see right here, okay? It's fervent worship. Not half-hearted, but passionate, wholehearted, sincere, all-out worship. Okay, you read these verses, shouting for joy, praising him, giving thanks, making melody, singing a new song, playing skillfully, loud shouts, Okay? As saved people, we have something to shout about and we are used to use every voice and every instrument at our disposal to sing to the Lord. Know this though, what matters most is not your ability to harmonize or as these verses tell us, to play the harp. Okay? What matters most is the heart from which your worship flows. The Lord looks, as we see, in, see later in these verses, the Lord looks upon those who fear him and those who are humble and contrite in spirit and in heart. 
And if you're anything like me, you give thanks to the Lord for those who are gifted to sing and are gifted to play and are gifted to lead us in worship. But what really matters here is the heart. And notice too who it is we are singing to. Okay, it might seem really obvious, but it's so important to note that we give thanks to the Lord. We make melody to him. We sing to him. Singing is to have a horizontal impact, yes, but it is primarily a vertical thing. And as we do that, we, as, we, as we sing to the Lord, as we sing those truths to the Lord, we remind ourselves of who God is and the fact that God is for us. That's what singing does for us. Focusing our attention on the Lord through singing to him is one of the primary means by which our affection is stirred towards him. I don't know about you, but so often you come to church on a Sunday morning and so many things going on and so many things to think about in the week ahead and, and distracted or a heavy heart and with, you, you stand up to sing that first song and one song, two song, three song and your heart begins to melt and you begin to you begin to gain perspective on life. You begin to remember who you are in, in Christ. You begin to be reminded of all that really matters in life. That's what singing does. Singing to the Lord is often the means by which our hearts are softened and we are reminded of the Lord's steadfast love. And for those of us who are Christians, uh, though that we always have something to sing about, we always have something to sing about. These opening verses remind us of that. Our circumstances don't compel us to sing. Our salvation is what compels us to sing. We always have something to sing about. I don't know whether those football fans will be still singing as they leave the stadium tonight. Some of you might know the score, I don't. Their singing is based on how successful their team is. But the foundation for fervent worship of the Christian isn't based on whether we feel like it. It is based on the faithful work of God in us. It isn't based on whether we feel like it. It isn't based on our circumstances. It's based on the certainty of our salvation and the faithfulness of God in our lives. And that is why we always, always, always have something to sing about. And the question for us is, is it, is it obvious to those who live side by side with us on a daily basis, do they know that we have something to sing about? your colleagues at work tomorrow morning, your children, your spouse, your family, can they hear your heart? Can they hear your heart? Can they hear what God has done and is doing in your heart? We are called to express our affection to the Lord and shout out loud to him and to one another. Sometimes that will be harder than others. Sometimes we'll need to listen to others around us in order to get us singing. Sometimes our loud shouts will be ones of lament. But the call here is to sing to the Lord and allow the truth of who he is and who we are in light of that to press deep in our hearts in a way that builds our trust in him. As we sing truths to God and we're reminded about the truths of God in a, in a unique and in a powerful way, it presses those truths deep into our hearts in order to help us trust in him. 
The challenge for us here is to consider the things in our lives that are stopping us from displaying that affection for the Lord to those around us. What circumstances in your life or sins that you're struggling with are making you silent? What do we need to ask the Lord to do in order to help us sing? And we need to to ask that so often. What do you need to ask the Lord? What do I need to ask the Lord to do in my heart in order to help me sing? I don't just mean on a Sunday morning. I mean sing, to be thankful, to be praising him, to be evidently affectionate for him all the time, even when it's difficult. Now, thankfully, this psalm doesn't just call us to shout to the Lord, okay? It gives us fuel in order to do so. That's the the gracious thing about the psalm. It doesn't just call us to worship, it gives us reasons to worship. I'm compelled to fervently worship the Lord, verses 1 to 3, as I'm fueled by a growing fear of the Lord, verses 4 to 19. Uh, Recently, we had the uh, privilege of uh, visiting Canada. We have some family there. We were over for a church conference as well. And uh, a must in Toronto, of course, is visiting the CN Tower. Um, and as you walk up to uh, the C- as I walked up to the CN Tower, or if you think about any tower or tower you've been to or tall building you've seen to, as as you go to the bottom of it and as you as you raise your head, one of the first things you do is open your mouth and wow, okay you. You see the height, you see the, the size of it, and as you stand at the bottom, the, the, the sight of it causes a reaction to come from you. It makes you feel small, it makes you feel insignificant, and it cert- strikes a certain kind of fear in you, okay? Particularly when you travel up the CN Tower, there's glass on the floor. Um, as you travel up that lift and you look down at what's below you, um, it strikes a certain fear within you. But that, that sight of something bigger than you, that sight of something greater than you, that sight of something that makes you feel insignificant causes you to, to look up and to audibly respond in awe. That's what these next verses are doing for us, okay? Verses 4 to 19 are the CN Tower for us, okay? If you want to think of it that way. These verses are what are going to cause us to, to look and to open our mouths and to respond in a way that the first three verses in this psalm call us to. What these verses are ultimately seeking to incite in us is a fear of the Lord. That's what verses 8 and 18 that bracket this section show us. Psalm 33 verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 33 18, behold the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope in his steadfast love. So what is the fear of the Lord and how does a growing fear of the Lord fuel our worship? So fear of the Lord comes about as we recognize how sinful and insignificant we are in light of the Lord's righteousness and justice and holiness and wrath. As we gaze upon the character of the Lord, everything else in our lives begins to peel in comparison and we recognize how helplessly exposed we are before him. We take sin seriously, we listen to the Lord's warnings, and we humble ourselves before him, and we tremble at his word. That's what fear of the Lord looks like. We take sin seriously. We take obedience to the Lord seriously. We listen to his warnings, we humble ourselves before him, and we tremble at his word. And this fear is what fuels our worship, because as we recognize our our weakness in life, 
and, and our sinfulness before a holy God and a, and a just God, we run as fast as we can to Jesus. And we look to him and we trust in him, the one who perfectly fears the Lord. And he is the one who enables us to rest secure that we are saved from the wrath and holy justice of God. Fear causes us to run from our sin and run to Jesus and find rest and comfort and security in all that he has done and all that he is for us. It reminds us of the Lord's faithfulness to us in Jesus and that causes us to rest in Jesus. Fear of the Lord is an awe of God that wakes us out of our apathy. It outweighs our anxiousness and causes us to express our affection to the Lord because of all that Jesus has accomplished for us. Awe of the Lord wakes us out of our apathy. It wakes us out of our apathetic thinking and living. It outweighs the anxiousness that we have in our heart and it causes us to express that affection that's called for here because of all that Jesus has accomplished for us. So if you look at verses four to five, we see the, the four, the, the because. Why should we worship the Lord? Verses one to three. Four, because. Verses four to five. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. These are the, the, the headline verses. These are the headline verses of verses four to 19 of this middle section. Why should we shout to the Lord? Why should we fear him? Because everything he says is true and right. Everything he does displays his faithfulness. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. And the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. This is the one who saved us. This is the one we get to shout about. Everything he says is true. Everything he does is faithful. He is perfectly righteous, perfectly just, just and his steadfast love surrounds us. So here we see the, the word of the Lord and, and the work of the Lord, which give us great reason to worship the Lord. The word of the Lord, which is, is true and, and right, and the work of the Lord, which is, is faithful and righteous and just, cause us to worship the Lord. And we see these two things, the, the, the word of the Lord and the work of the Lord, we see them fleshed out in the following verses. He spoke into existence everything around me. That's the first thing we see in verses four to nine. By the word of the Lord, the, the heavens were made. That is the word that is true and right. The same word was, was what made the heavens. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. This image of, of all the oceans of the world. God is able to, to gather them all as a heap. To, to put them into, as some translations phrase it, into a jar. He, is, he puts the, the deeps into, into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, he just spoke, and it came to be. He just spoke, and he just commanded, and it stood firm, and it still stands firm. The Lord is to be feared because he literally spoke everything around me, everything around us into existence. Creation by his word confirms the authority and the certainty of his word. Creation by his word both confirms the authority of that word and the certainty of that word. And we see his power on full display here. He is able to, to gather the waters into a heap. He's able to put the deep in the storehouses, a picture of his ability to control and to manipulate the oceans as he pleases. 
And not only has the Lord created everything around us, he also sustains it. We saw that in, in verse 9. It, it stands firm. Creation not only displays the greatness of God, but it also displays his goodness. That creation still stands, that it's still here, is evidence that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. He sustains it and he continues to sustain the world around us and he sustains it by his word. He created it by his word and he sustains it by his word. Recently I had the chance to go camping and I'm sure you can resonate with the experience that you get when um, you go out into the wilderness, you go out into an area where there's no lights and you get such a clear view of the moon. And the night that we were camping, uh, there was a full moon and I wonder what some of the thoughts are that go through your head when you, when you stare up at the, the moon or the stars or the sun. Well, sun's a bit harder to stare at, right? But as you stare at this, the moon, um, you, you recognize its, its beauty. You recognize how incredible it is. Um, and you begin to realize how, even though it might seem quite far off and small, you can put your hand over it. In reality, it's, it's huge. You begin to feel the insignificance how small we are compared to all that God has created. So often we delude ourselves into thinking we are powerful or significant. And we are motivated to gain more power and more significance. But ultimately these verses remind us that in the grand scheme of things we are very insignificant. Next time you look at the full moon, next time you fly over an ocean, Look out and remind yourself that actually in the grand scheme of things, though we might think we're powerful, though we might think we're significant, in the grand scheme of God's creation, we are only a very small part. Yet in Jesus, who John 1 tells us is the ultimate word from God, his word in creation, his word in sustaining, but the ultimate word from God is Jesus and through whom God created and sustains the world. We have a God who chose to dwell as a man amongst us. He chose to become insignificant. And he chose to become a part of his own creation in order to die for us so that we might have life in him. So instead of striving for power and for significance, we're called to just stand in awe. Jesus made himself insignificant for us. He came as a man amongst us and through his strength and his power, all we have to do is stand in awe. This awe is what will fuel our affection for the Lord and cause us to shout aloud to the Lord. The next thing we see is that he controls all that happens to me. Verses 10 to 12. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. The blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The, these verses tell us that the Lord is in control of all that happens in this world and in our lives, in my life and in your life, even when it doesn't seem like it. His purposes and plans will always prevail and they always stand firm. That's what verse 11 says, okay? His counsel, his plans, they stand firm throughout every generation. That means it's true for us right now. Each one of us in this room, God's purposes and plans stand for every generation. Often we look at what is going on in the world uh, around us and we begin to despair or lose heart, particularly maybe in these days. What we see in the news, 
laws being changed, elections being called, everything seems to be going in a way that causes us to maybe despair or lose heart. We wonder how it is that God is still active and working to bring the plans of the nations to nothing. But these verses tell us that God is in control. In our lives, we long to be in control. We long to be in control of what, what happens. We long to be able to control our health. We long to be able to control our finances. We long to be able to control how our children will turn out, how our relationships will go. But ultimately, we see in these verses that as we look at these verses, as, as we gaze up at them, as we stand in awe of them, we ultimately realize that we are powerless. We can control everything. And ultimately, because of our weakness and because of the sin that still exists within us, we shouldn't really want to be in control of our own lives because that never ends well. As followers of Jesus, these verses should bring us no great certainty. Because God is for us, not only is God in control of all that happens to us, but he works everything that happens to us for our good. These verses bring us great certainty because we know that in Jesus, God's purposes and plans for us are ultimately his work in our lives to make um, everything turn out for good. Sometimes we talk about the, the sovereignty of God and, and the providence of God. The sovereignty of God is the fact that God is in control of all things. He is above all things. But he's not just in control of all things. In his providence, he uses that control to bring about something good through what happens in our lives for our good and for his glory. He's not just in control of all things, his sovereignty. In, in his providence, he uses all that he, his control to bring about something good in my life and in your life, even when it's so hard to see it in the moment. For our good and for his glory. And we need to remember here again those header verses in verses 4 and 5. We don't, we don't need to know, nor can we know every detail of those plans, right? We feel that tension. We feel that desire to know. We want to know how things are going to turn out, but we, but we can't know everything. Instead, we get to entrust ourselves to the one who brings those plans and purposes about. That's what God's calling us to here. He's calling us to entrust ourselves to the one who everything he says is true and right. Everything he does is faithful. He loves righteousness. He loves justice. And the earth is full of his steadfast love. That's why verse 12, if you look down, declares that God's people are blessed because the God whose plans and purposes stand forever is a God of righteousness and justice and the earth is full of his steadfast love. That's why his people are blessed. And again, this should drive us towards worship, recognizing our powerlessness and finding certainty in the plans and purposes of the Lord. The next thing we see in these verses is that he sees everything that is done by me. Verses 13 to 15. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. The Lord is to be feared because he sees everything that I do that you do. Everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, even when we think no one else can, the Lord looks down and he sees everything. 
He sits on his throne. He is the true ruler of this world and of our lives. And these verses tell us that he sees everything. He sees right into the deepest recesses of our heart. Ken, he doesn't just see it in some kind of sideward glance sort of way. He's not just aware of it. Okay, look at the words that it uses here. He, he considers it. Okay, he, he weighs it up. He inspects it. He doesn't forget it. He doesn't just look at it from the corner of his eye and, and he's aware of it. He considers it. He looks at it. He considers it. He weighs it and he inspects it and he doesn't forget it. All that's going on in our head and in our heart and all that we do with our hands. Uh, when we were on our way to Canada, like every airport, you have to go through security, right? And uh, there's that moment when you dump everything into the tray, you hope it goes through uh, the scanner with no uh, glitches, and uh, you join the queue to go through the, the detector. And there's that anxiousness, isn't there? That little bit of fear that uh, something will go off, it'll set the beeper off, and then you have to go through the embarrassing rigmarole of uh, being brushed down by the person. But you cannot get from the security queue to the departure line without being completely examined. Everything is exposed. All your possessions, everything that's on you, you can't hide anything, it'll be picked up. And so often we live and think as if we are completely free to do whatever we want. Yet we forget that we have been formed by the Lord. That's what it says here. He has formed us and therefore we owe him an account for what we have done. Romans 14, 12 says, So then each of us will give an account to, of himself to God. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are autonomous, that we are free to do whatever we like. And we forget that we owe the Lord an account for our lives. All of us, even those of us who are trusting in Jesus, all of us will have to give an account for our lives. As followers of Jesus, it's so easily to coast into a place, Right? If you think about your life, if you think about your, your, your temperament and your mentality on the daily life as you seek to follow Jesus, it's so easy to coast into a place where there is no fear of the Lord with respect to how we live our lives. We act as if he can't see what we are doing and secret sin festers because there is no fear of the Lord. That's how sin festers, that's how sin grows. Secret sin festers because there is no fear of the Lord. We slander others in secret on the car on the way home from church we abuse substances in secret. We lust in secret. We vent our anger in the secrecy of our own homes. And then we, uh, we come to work and we come to school and we put on a front. Yet these verses tell us that the Lord sees it all. And we need to be reminded that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to, to, to fall into the hands of the living God. Secret sin festers because there is no fear of the Lord in our lives. It's something that we so easily coast into. We forget that he sees, we forget that he judges, we forget that he weighs all that we do and all that we say and all that we think. The Lord sees and knows all that you do and all that others do around you and sin won't go unpunished, wrongs will be made right. But for those who have trusted in the work of Jesus, God graciously sees the deeds of his son when he weighs up our deeds, when he looks at our lives in his mercy God graciously sees the deeds of his son rather than our own deeds when he looks at us. That is what forgiveness is. That is what grace is. That is what mercy is. When he looks at us, he sees his son. Yet even though we have been forgiven, 
we are still called to live in fear. Fear that doesn't bear the, the shame of sin, but that seeks to run as far from it as possible. Fear of the Lord for those who are trusting in Jesus doesn't bear the, the, the shame of sin or the, the guilt of sin that has been removed, that has been taken away because of the grace of God. But the fear of the Lord for those who follow Jesus means that we seek to run as far away from the indwelling sin that stills remain, far away as possible and as fast as possible. Forgiven people are people who fear God because they understand what it costs for them to receive that forgiveness. And they desire, they desire to bear much fruit for him. Forgiven people are those who fear God because they understand what it costs for them to receive his righteousness and forgiveness. And they desire to bear much fruit in their lives. And the last thing we see in this middle section is that his strength alone is able to rescue me. Verses 16 to 19. The king is not saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. What often stops us from singing when you think back to how you felt as you stood up this evening for the first song or this morning for the first song? What often stops us from shouting out to the Lord is the weight that we bear because we try to do everything in our own strength. What stops us from shouting out to the Lord is often the weight that we bear because we try to do everything in our own strength. It weighs us down and it's hard to sing, right? It's hard to shout out. I've lived twice on second floor flats and now live in the ground floor flat and will never go back. Um, you, when you get shopping or you've got boxes to move or you've got something to take up, you always try to take as much as you possibly can in order to stop yourself going back down a second time, right? This guy's nodding his head. He knows what it's like. You always take as much as you can because you don't want to have to make a second trip. But always overestimate your own strength. Always overestimate how much you can carry. And that's the reality that verses 16 and 17 tells us is that we aren't strong enough. We don't have the strength we need to save ourselves. Even those who seem strongest and biggest, okay, and most able, even they can't do it. That's what the verses say. Even kings, even armies can't do it. Devoting ourselves to false hopes for salvation stops us from fearing the Lord and experiencing the rescue that only he can give and the rescue that we so desperately need. We are called to hope in his steadfast love. And when we do that, he keeps us. He keeps us and he sustains us. Not false hopes for salvation, but in the steadfast love of God. And he keeps us and he sustains us. Recognizing we are weak causes us to run to him for rescue. And when we do that, it should result in the worship that verses 1 to 3 call us to. When we recognize our weakness and our inability to do things for ourselves and our inability to save ourselves and our inability to walk with the Lord on our own, it causes us to run to him for rescue. And when we do it, it results in wholehearted, restful, confident joy in the Lord. So often we strive after false hopes that we think will save us and others. 
Instead of fearing the Lord and finding strength in him, we pridefully just exhaust ourselves thinking that we can fix our marriages, our children, that we can fix our finances, that we have the ability within us to meet other people's deepest needs. That is within our own strength that we can be saved and deal with sin in our lives. The reality is that these false hopes, the idea that we can fix things for ourselves, comes about because we don't fear the Lord and his strength. And we rob ourselves of his faithfulness towards us, his rescue of us, and his sustaining grace to keep us. We don't fear his, his strength and his might and his power. We, we've put our heads down and we rely on ourselves. And instead of looking to him and fearing his strength, which he offers to use to rescue us, we instead pridefully exhaust ourselves trying to do everything on our own. And that is what weighs us down. And that is what crushes us and stops us crying out and shouting out loud to him. And what these verses are meant to, to remind us of is that in light of who God is, we are weak, not strong. And because of all that God is for us, we can experience that rest and we can experience that rescue. These verses are here to fuel our worship of the Lord by causing us to fear him. As we look up to him and we see the power of his word in creation, it creates jaw-dropping awe. When we realize the power and purpose of, purposes of his plan, it causes us to cry out from a place of certainty. When we recognize how exposed we are before him because he can see everything that we do, it causes us to exult in his forgiveness. And when we own up to our weakness before him, it causes us to rejoice in his rescue and in his rest. So as we see the truth of who God is and as we remind ourselves of it, as we sing that truth to him, it does a work of transformation in our hearts that leads us to trust him. As we see the truth of who God is in his word, as we sing that truth and remind ourselves of it, it does a work of transformation in our hearts that causes us to deepen our trust in him. So I'm compelled to fervently worship the Lord as I'm fueled by a growing fear of the Lord and finally leading to my, leading to my heart trusting in the Lord. That's what the last three verses tell us. So we've had the call to worship. We have reasons for worship. And now we see the result of that worship in our lives. Psalm 33 verses 20. Our souls wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust. Because we trust in his holy name. That is what fear-fueled worship is designed to lead us to. Okay, notice the flow here in these verses. Our soul waits for the Lord. Why? Why does our soul wait for the Lord? Because our heart is glad in him. Why is our heart glad in him? Because we trust in his holy name. Our soul waits because our heart is glad because we trust in his holy name. Trusting in his holy name is trust in his character. It's the same thing in, in who he is. And, and as we've been reminded in these, in these middle verses, verses 4 to 19, as we, as we stand in awe and fear of who God is, it moves us to a place where in Jesus we can trust in him, which then enables our hearts to be glad in him and then to rejoice in him. Greater trust leads to a glad heart, which leads to a patient soul. Greater trust leads to a glad heart, which leads to a patient, a patient soul. Isn't that what you long for? 
that as you gather with God's people, as you spend time with the Lord, as you grow and, and mature in your walk with the Lord, that you would trust in him more than that would lead to a heart that is glad, that would lead to a soul that waits patient. That's what I long for. That's what I need so much in my life. So often weak and unable to see God in the midst of circumstances of life and that we would sing and, and remind ourselves of these truths so that our trust would grow, that our hearts would become glad and that our souls would, would wait on the Lord. We long for a greater trust that would result in a glad heart and a heart that both shouts out loud to the Lord but that also learns to wait patiently on the Lord. And that's a hard thing to do sometimes. To wait, to trust, to be patient in the Lord. <coughs> and what enables that trust here is a radical change in perspective, a greater fear of the Lord that will enable us to patiently praise the Lord. Okay, not just a, a burst here or there, not just a loud burst here or a loud burst there, but a day by day, week by week, year by year, lifelong shouting out to the Lord that flows from a heart that fears the Lord and has learned patiently to wait on the Lord and to praise him even in the midst of pain, even when we're under great pressure. That's what that radical new perspective in the middle seeks to do for us. It seeks to cause us to deepen our trust in him so that we would shout out loud to him all the time. Not just when it's easy. That pain and that pressure, that's what verse 20 alludes to, right? It says he is our help and our shield. Don't need a shield for the beach. Don't need a shield for a holiday. Don't need a shield for the supermarket. You need a shield for a battle. And that's what we're in the midst of. We're in a battle. It's not easy, yet there's always reason to be hopeful. There's always reason to rejoice. So the invitation here is to join in with this psalm, to join in with this song, to stand in awe of who God is and to know his steadfast love towards us. And we get to do that together, okay? That's one of the amazing things about um, this psalm, about God's design for his people, that we would get to do that together. Look at, notice verse 20 to 22 says, okay, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name even as we hope in you. I hope that you never lose the privilege and the joy is to worship with God's people, to be side by side on a daily basis, on a weekly basis and as you come together on a day like this. I hope you never lose the joy of coming to do this together. We're not called to sing a solo called to sing together to the Lord, about the Lord. And as we do that together, we remind ourselves and we remind each other that he is a God of steadfast love in whom we can hope. Fervent worship is fueled by fear of the Lord and flows from a heart that trusts in the Lord. The Lord longs for us to know his steadfast love and salvation. And as we stand in awe of him, we will always have something to sing about. Uh, let me pray. Father, we just thank you that you are an awesome God. 
that you are God who created this world, that you are God who is in control of our lives. You are God who sent your son into this world that he might live the life that we could never live. That his life was perfect, his deeds were perfect. He perfectly feared you. And so, Father, we pray that you would cause us to be in awe of who you are and what you have done in Jesus for us that we would rest in his righteousness, that we would rest in all that he has done for us and that you would continue to incite that joyful fear in our lives as we seek to live for you, Father. Would you renew and refresh that perspective um, that we are to have of who you are and who we are in this world? And Father, just thank you that you are a gracious God. Would you cause our hearts to be glad? Would you cause us to trust in you? Would you cause us to love you? Would you cause us to lean on you? And we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.